Fighting Through World War Two, Episode 83, Corporal Leslie Cook and the Japanese Doll. More great unpublished history. An exquisitely dressed doll in a glass case stands in a prominent place in our home in Canberra and I've often been asked about its origin. In addition to its sentimental value as a token of gratitude, the doll is a constant reminder to me of the tragedy of war. We'd been in the Owen Stanley Mountains for three months before we reached the coast at Gona, and already we were half-starved and exhausted. We learned with a vengeance the significance of those signs we'd seen on the winding road from Port Moresby to the start of the Kokoda track. The three signs read, in order as we passed them, One might, one bite, good night. Nobody who was at Gona will ever forget it. Hello again, and another warm welcome to the Fighting Through Second World War podcast. I'm Paul Cheels and a Bill Cheel, whose World War II memoirs have been published by Pen and Sword in Fighting Through from Dunkirk to Hamburg. The aim of this podcast is to give you the stories behind the story and much more. You'll hear memoirs and interviews with veterans in all the countries and all the forces. Today is the story of the Japanese doll, which we covered partly during the interview in episode 82, and I'm going to read it as Aussie veteran Les Cook himself originally wrote it. You heard a few previews of the story in the intro to this episode. Right now, a bit of follow-up from the last episode, firstly from Debbie, Les's daughter. Les recently took part in the Anzac Parade in Australia and led the march no less. And Deb has sent me some great photos which I've posted in the show notes to this episode, along with a link to a video of the parade. It was great the way Les's escort never left his side for a second. And what a great set of photographs you'll see if you look in the show notes. Now, just for starters, a few coffee and Calvados donations gratefully received from Patrick Grutus in Kalamazoo, Michigan, US, and Graham Curry from Orlando. He added, love the podcast, Paul. I've read thousands of books about World War II, and I love your dad's book. I read because of the inspiring human stories that emerge, and that's what I like about your podcast and your dad's book. Thank you, Graham and Patrick. A bit of news, reviews and family stories now. Thank you to Matt from Vancouver in British Columbia, Canada, for his five solid stars in my latest Apple Podcasts review. And Wolfie Wolf on Apple said, I just went to a funeral last week to say goodbye to a cousin of my mother's. He was a navigator on a B-17 in the 8th Army Air Force, stationed in England during World War II. He was 96. They had his old navigator maps, with his flight path in red grease pencil, one to Berlin. Also, the old pictures of him and his buddies in London on Liberty Call. The Air Force sent a detail and gave the funnel flag to his great-grandson. Thanks to Addis Gap from the US for your review, and a big shout-out for Craig Gingell from Cardiff, who posted a review on CastBox. And Craig said, With World War II history, it's all too easy to see soldiers as numbers or statistics in grand battles. Paul's show reminds us all that these were people doing extraordinary things when called upon. And Craig added, I'm heading to Normandy at the end of May and will be taking my kids to some of the D-Day beaches to make sure the next generation understand what people went through to earn the freedom that we now all enjoy. How good is that? And that's Craig saying that. And uh, Craig's just bought one of the three remaining signed hard copies of Dad's book with bookmark, picks and a strictly limited edition fighting through jigsaw and blow me he even bought me a nice calvados to boot thank you craig 
And that reminds me, I went to the shops last Friday afternoon on my bicycle and bought a bottle of Calvados which I put in the bicycle basket. As I was about to leave, I thought to myself that if I fell off the bicycle, the the bottle would break. So, so what the heck, I drank all the Calvados before I cycled home. And you know what? It turned out to be a very good decision because I fell off my bike seven times on the way home. Struth. <laughs> You've got to try, haven't you? Carrying on with Craig, you also sent me this lovely World War Two family story snippet. My mother has told me that my grandfather, Edwin Holder, was part of Mountbatten's personal guard in Burma. He survived malaria twice, but died of lung cancer when I was about three. And the only information I have is that one of his friends got shot and they evacuated him down the mountain to the casualty evacuation point. But he died when they got to the Kasivak. My grandfather was the only one who survived of all the people he knew who joined the army with him from Ebbvale in South Wales. My mother has his service book in the loft, so I'm hoping to do more research into his activities. Craig, I've sent you a link to the Fighting Through Research tab from my home page, which has got lots of helpful research links uh, for all sorts of inquiries that you might have. I've put a link in the show notes. And if any listener can recommend a good book about Mountbatten, which might reflect Craig's grandfather's war whereabouts, I am sure Craig would be grateful. Kyle Romanishan from Stony Creek, Ontario, Canada, said, I really enjoy your podcast. Gave it five stars on Spotify. Good man, Kyle. <laughs> Especially liked episode 73, POWs in World War Two. I've been to Poland, been married in Shubin, and I've seen where the soldiers in the episode stayed. A very special place for me. Kyle, I've just been re-listening to episode 73 about the POWs and it really is a cracking story for anyone who hasn't heard it yet. And if anyone has a penchant for POWs, the easiest way to check out the category for any subject, such as Dunkirk, Tanks or indeed POWs, is to click on the Episodes tab at the top of my home page and the categories list will drop down to help you see the beaches from the bocage. Dustin Fisher from Ontario, Canada. I'd like to first thank you for your father's service. Him and so many others will forever be my heroes. Thank you for all the amazing work you've done. I'm currently on episode 31 and I listen near every day at work. Can't wait to hear from your mum. I've always been interested in the wars and this podcast has captivated and inspired me to get back into researching the wars. And that's Dustin Fisher from Kitchener-Waterloo in Ontario. Thanks for your interest and kind comments, Dustin. That's, that's some place name where you live, and you will love my dear mum's stories when you get to her. Just search under the categories for Women at War, of which we've heard from several. Feedback from Rob Edmonds now. Uh, Rob is an historical novelist and we recently exchanged a few words via Twitter. He's currently writing something based around, would you believe, Burma and India in World War II. So I look forward to hearing more. And Rob says, I live very close to Pwyll Du Bay in Wales. Its claim to fame is that it was the location during World War II where the German U-boat crews would come ashore under cover of darkness for fresh water. Technically, it must be the last place on the British mainland to have been invaded by a hostile foreign power. I looked it up and Pwildu is a secluded bay at the end of Bishopton Valley. The beach is backed by a large bank of limestone pebbles with plenty of sand at low water and I've put a link in the show notes. Just for your interest, I've added a few photographs in the show notes, and uh, one of the bay, and one of its location not far from Swansea, on the south coast of Wales, really not that far from Cardiff or Bristol, indeed actually in the waters of the Bristol Channel. Wow. 
crafty krauts st- stealing water from right under our noses. Rob, thanks for that precious little nugget of World War Two history. I'm putting a link to your Twitter account in the show notes where people can find out more about your novels about Masinissa, an ancient African king. Stunning photographs you've got on your Twitter account as well. Mr Wayne Howard, my mate from Norfolk, just phoned to take the mickey out of my Australian accent (laughs) but says I can carry on trying because it gives everyone a laugh. Not because it's good, by the way. Wayne nevertheless enjoyed my rendition of Les Cook's story about the Aussie trooper who impatiently interrupted the noisy, screaming Japanese soldiers poised to attack by shouting, If you's a gun have a go, don't stand there all night talking about it. (laughs) Better than last time? Worse? No? Oh well. Wayne added a little fighting through factoid that the reason the Brits are referred to as Poms by the Aussies is because in the the early days of successive ships delivering yet another shipload of British convicts down under, they were colloquially referred to as prisoners of Her Majesty, with a silent H, hence P-O-M, Pom, or, to coin a phrase, yet more bloody Poms, or, or as in rugby football or cricket, Strouth, Barry, the Poms have beaten us again. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> so, <laughs> sorry, chaps. <laughs> Couldn't resist that one. Oh, dear. Bernie Walker said, My heart goes out to the people of Ukraine. Keep up the hard fight. And Bernie has sent me the most brilliant Christmas story about the war in North Africa involving the Italians. So guess what? I'm going to save it, not till the PS, but Christmas. (laughs) That's Christmas 2022. It's in the template document, just waiting for Santa time. And it's a beauty. Julian Pisa from Hamburg wrote in, Dear Paul, I've been meaning to write for some time thanking you for the amazing podcast. I often say that reality is more incredible than fiction and the stories you share go beyond our wildest imagination. I particularly enjoyed the episodes on the Lancaster, but the episode on the Wrens, as well as the episode with your mother, were especially meaningful. It's now been about two years that I've been researching the last flight of Avro Lancaster P.B. 958 and its crew. I've collected piles of archival documents which paint a vivid picture of who these men were and have been able to contact a number of their living relatives. It's moments like these that really make all the long hours work worthwhile, bringing back a long-lost uncle or a cousin or in some cases even someone's father. I'm currently painstakingly transcribing the nearly 200-page handwritten transcript of the war crimes trial held here in Hamburg at the Curio House in the summer of 1946 in relation to PB 958 and the murder of Flight Sergeant Kevin George Clark. Statements by witnesses, statements by the accused. 1946 cursive is nigh illegible, but over time let us start to form familiar words, and those words complete sentences. I intend to write a book as a lasting memorial to the crew of PB 958, one story among thousands similar, and you can bet that the Fighting Through podcast will get a sneak peek as well. (laughs) Good man, Peter. This week... I met with one 92-year gentleman who used to be a Flakhelfer, Luftwaffe Auxiliary Staff, in 1945. He showed me his original 1943 aircraft identification handbook, as well as a written retelling of his memories and experiences. He's asked me to identify an aircraft from his childhood, a fresh wreck he crawled through. Last winter... I helped a fellow historian uncover an old wartime mystery of an unknown aircraft crashing in his village. Hours of checking various databases provided a match, and not only were we able to successfully identify it, a B-24 by the name of BART, 
but a local citizen reached out with aeroplane parts, which turned out to be a quite well-preserved Norden bombsite from the very same aircraft. We're currently trying to turn it into a permanent memorial in the village, and by doing that, hope to keep the history alive. Thanks once again, Paul. I can't wait for the next episode. Take care, Julian. Julian, thank you so much for that, and do keep in touch with your progress, as I know there are stacks of people who are very interested in Lancasters and their heritage, and they'll queue up just to hear word of some new discovery. A final word, a wry, knowing smile from me regarding that bombsite that suddenly turned up out of nowhere. We've heard before on this podcast how the locals ransacked crashed planes just to grab a souvenir or two, and maybe it was no bad thing when it possibly saved parts from complete meltdown in the knacker's yard. Brad Schutz from Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania has been in touch. My grandpa was John Dietrich and he was in the Navy during World War II. His squadron, Motor Torpedo Boat Squadron 21, received the Presidential Unit Citation in October 43. He was a gunner's mate first class, and was discharged in October 1945. He was the cook on a boat which included 12 enlisted men and two officers. His squadron followed a convoy to Papua New Guinea, and then patrolled the Admiralty Islands, and most of his time was spent in the southwest Pacific area. On a side note, he used to cook my twin brother and I breakfast, and would always load up the eggs with lots of salt and pepper. We asked Grandpa why he did that. He said it was because when he cooked the imitation eggs on the boat, he'd have to load them up with salt and pepper, because they had no taste. (laughs) Better than bully beef, Brad. I work at a golf course, and at any time I'm on a mower, I listen to your podcast. I'm on episode 38, so I still have quite a few to listen to. They definitely help my day go on quicker and more enjoyable. The only issue I sometimes have is understanding the accent some of the British vets have, lol. (laughs) Brad, you mean like Wolf Shaw's pies have come, and over the... I'm sure you do. Brad, eventually you're going to arrive at the Aussie veteran Les Cook stories and you're going to hear about someone on a grass mower in a very precarious position and you'll smile and think back to this warning. So rubber stamp it in your brain now for when the time comes. I'll say no more, but do drop me a line when the penny drops. Thanks, Brad. Family story from Mark Wright Johnson in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Paul, you recently asked for information on mini tanks. I heard an account somewhere of a German soldier defending the Normandy beaches operating one of these. This soldier was under such intense fire he had trouble both with control wiring being destroyed by bombs and just being able to observe progress of the vehicle. There's a link in the show notes. I know how much you enjoy an amusing war story. A friend of mine became a pilot of B-52s. Part of his initial training was escape and evasion, which took place on some acreage adjoining an airbase in Washington State. A group of students were put on one side of the acreage and had to reach the other side without being seen by two or three officers who walked around at random. Of course, this military zone is fenced off, but for safety reasons, and given that it was hunting season, students had to wear orange vests. Again, many thanks for the podcast and for the Ukrainian appeal. Mark Wright Johnson from Santa Fe. Thanks, Mark, and I'm pleased to advise that 60 people have now linked through to the Red Cross and Salvation Army charity links I posted in the show notes, and I've left them there for anyone else who wishes to support these humanitarian charities which are doing such good work. If you click on the links, you'll learn that they're doing much more than cups of tea and sandwiches in railway stations. Those 60 donors could have left more than a £1,000 or dollars to those appeals, so thank you very much. Andy Crabbe has been in touch from Canberra. 
He says, my pop was a medic for the Wehrmacht and was part of the occupying forces in the Channel Islands. And this is how he, how he met my nan. He managed to have a book, An Island Destiny, published on the stories of his life. And here's a link to a small part of his story. Link in the show notes. There's just one snippet from his story that I'll share with you, listener. Um, my father used to say, before I was sent from Germany that if I had to go and occupy somewhere to make sure I treated everyone humanely, with respect, and they would treat us in the same manner. It was true. And you can read more about Werner Rank's war as a German medic, how he met his British wife-to-be, and his destiny as a POW in Britain, at the link in the show notes. Carrying on with family stories, Stephen Chin. If anyone needs an architect in Ohama, Nebraska, then I suggest you contact Stephen Gin of Stephen Gin Architects. That's my plug, not Stephen's, because if he designs as well as he tells stories, then he must be good. And this story wins this year's Spooky or What award. Steve has said, My dad... Bill Jin was in school at Harvard in the fall of 1941 and thought it odd that the Japanese ambassador's son was not in class on December the 5th. He never missed class. On the 7th, my dad realised why. When he heard about Pearl Harbour. Wow. Dad signed up to fight two days later. When he enlisted, they thought he looked Italian. He's not, but he's actually English-Irish. And they sent him off to learn Italian with the expectation he should be dropped into Italy to facilitate the resistance. But he was injured during training and ended up translating for Italian POWs in California. And listeners, wouldn't we just love to hear from any of those? Is that you? Steve continues. My uncle, James Fulton, signed up in 1939 and was a military engineer under Omar Bradley, for whom he had great affection. He served from North Africa up through Italy and into Germany. After the war, he went back to Italy and married my aunt Flora, who was quite a lady. She spoke English and had two college degrees, unheard of in a woman from Italy in 1945. After they were married, they spent ten years in Japan as part of the occupation force. As a kid, when I asked my uncle about the war, he brushed me off and say, no one wants to talk about that. Thank you again, Steve. Thank you, Steve. And don't you just love it? when you get these little threads of interest repeated throughout the show from time to time. No sooner have we finished listening to Les Cook's story of the time he was part of the occupation force in Japan than up pops Steve with his story of his uncle doing similar. Just great stuff. On to the main event now. The Japanese Doll I've been keeping this one back from the earlier series of stories because I thought it was rather special. It's the tale of a soldier who has to bury dead Japanese soldiers. A very distasteful duty, but one which many years later paid him back in positive ways he could not have imagined at the time. The soldier, of course, is Australian veteran Les Cook and his daughter Deb told me that the story about the Japanese doll has its origins in a field in northern New Guinea where the mopping up of the Japanese was happening and after a banzai challenge. Les mentioned that there were some hundreds of bodies in an area not much bigger than a football field and this is where we got the Japanese diary and flag from. You're going to learn that this true story contains much more than the interview with Les, and even after the third time of reading it, I still find it to be an incredibly moving and powerful story. On more than one occasion, 
I felt myself welling up with emotion at what I've been reading. Here we go, the Japanese doll. An exquisitely dressed doll in a glass case stands in a prominent place in our home in Canberra. About 40 centimetres tall, the figure is of a girl in traditional Japanese costume. Its striking beauty has always attracted the attention of visitors, and I've often been asked about its origin. The doll was given to us by the Kondo family of Japan in thanks for returning to them personal effects of a member of their family, a Japanese soldier who was killed in New Guinea during the war. In addition to its sentimental value as a token of gratitude, the doll is a constant reminder to me of the tragedy of war. As I gaze at it today, my thoughts take me back almost 60 years to the fever-ridden coastal swamps of New Guinea where this story began. In my mind's eye, I see the desolate scene again so vividly and in such detail that for a moment I feel as though I'm actually there. I hear the incessant rattle of rifle and machine gun fire, sense the oppressive heat and humidity and the cloying stench, and I feel the numbing tiredness that dulls all sensation, even fear. I see the gaunt, exhausted faces of my mates, and I remember those who are gone. With the sentimentality that comes when we grow old, to those who've lived through desperate battles, I am saddened by the awful human cost of war. The battle for Gona and the clean-up afterwards was my worst experience of the war. We'd been in the Owen Stanley Mountains for three months before we reached the coast at Gona and already were half-starved and exhausted. Gona was a small village, surrounded by a fetid swamp, infested with a multitude of biting insects, some of their bites being fatal. We were in open kunai grass country without shade, and lived almost continually in slimy swamp water, which often was the only water we had to drink. The Japanese were hemmed in with their backs to the sea. Their country had abandoned them. There was nowhere for them to go, and they fought to the bitter end. Diaries taken from their bodies after the fall of Gona are stark evidence that they were aware of the utter hopelessness of their position. But those same diaries also tell of their determination to fight to the last. Although it seems to me now to have been much longer, the battle only lasted about three weeks. It had become a battle of attrition. Reading the official history now, it's clear that even our own high command was almost despairing of the outcome because of the numerous unsuccessful attacks and the high casualties. Unaware of their concern, the few of us who were there just kept going. Sickness and disease caused more casualties than the enemy. Scrub typhus, a disease caused by the bite of a tiny mite, was a certain killer in those days, and cerebral malaria and dysentery were also responsible for many deaths. We learned with a vengeance the significance of those signs we'd seen on the winding road from Port Moresby, up Hombrum Bluff, to the start of the track to Kokoda. The three signs read, in order as we passed them, One mite. One bite. Good night. We were so short of men that apart from the wounded, only those whose temperatures went above 104 degrees Fahrenheit, 40 degrees centigrade, or who were unable to stand, 
were evacuated to the field hospital at Saputa, about 15 kilometres back. The walking wounded and the sick who were able to do so made the trip on foot through the mud. The sick who were considered likely to recover from their sickness in a few days were merely sent back about one kilometre where they could at least lie in the shade of the trees and where they either got better or worse, largely on their own merits. There were few medical supplies. After the fighting was over, we were faced with the unpleasant task of burying the dead. The Japanese had stopped burying or burning their dead, but just put them outside their bunkers and weapon pits, sometimes in heaps more than a metre high. The latter was probably done with the intention to burn them in due course, as was their custom, but the intensity and closeness of the fighting did not allow this. Our dead, inside and close to their perimeter, also remained unburied. There were places around some of the positions where the dead of both sides were intermingled as the positions were won and lost in the seesawing battle. More than 1,000 dead from both sides in various stages of decomposition lay in this very small area when the battle was over. Nobody who was at Gona will ever forget it. Indeed, when I look back on that year of 1942, I believe that none of the units that had served in the Middle East and had returned more or less intact and unchanged were ever the same after the Owen Stanley and Gona campaigns. This would be equally true, of course, of those units that served at Milne Bay, Buna and Sanananda Point that year. After Gona fell on 8th of December 1942, some units started moving up the coast towards the mouths of the Amboga and Kamuzi rivers to contain the Japanese forces that had landed there to reinforce the Gona garrison. The rest of us were engaged initially on burying the dead, a task which occupied us for three days in the most awful conditions. It was customary in such circumstances to collect from the enemy dead any papers or documents that might be of use for intelligence purposes. These were passed to our intelligence people. Among other things I'd collected was a diary and a flag taken from the pack of one of the Japanese we'd buried. The flag was of white silk about 90 centimetres square with the large red dot of the rising sun in the centre and around which were handwritten Japanese characters in black ink. I understand that these characters were wishes of good luck written by the family and friends of the soldier. Many of the Japanese who served in that 1942 campaign in New Guinea carried these flags, and many also wore the belt of a thousand stitches, a good luck charm. These men had been at war for a long time, having fought in China, the Malay Peninsula and in Java before going to New Guinea. This particular man had left Japan in February 1940, almost a year before Japan entered the war, so it was probably in all those campaigns. I don't recall seeing a Japanese soldier with either of these things in subsequent campaigns. I wonder why. Our intelligence people had all the information they required, so I was allowed to keep the diary and the flag I took them with me when I came back to Australia at the end of January 1943 and left them at home. I was at Balak Papan in Borneo when the war ended and went to Japan with the Australian contingent of the occupation forces. While in Japan we took our turn with other British Commonwealth countries and the Americans on guard duties in Tokyo. One of the places we guarded was the Yasukuni Shrine, a Shinto shrine dedicated to the spirits of those Japanese who've died in battle. The attendants at the shrine were all old soldiers, one of whom could speak English. While discussing the differing aspects of the Shinto and Christian religions with him, I told him of the flag and diary, 
He explained that in Japanese family remembrance ceremonies, there is deep spiritual significance in having something that was with the deceased relative at the time of death. Becoming aware that the articles I'd taken home as souvenirs would be of such great comfort to the soldier's family, I realised that it would be morally wrong for me to keep them. I resolved then that I would return them to his family if possible. Our family moved to Canberra in 1964 and I frequently passed the Japanese embassy on my way to and from work. This reminded me of the diary and flag. I took the diary to the embassy asking if they could identify the soldier from it and if so would they try to locate the family and have the diary and flag returned. The people with whom I spoke at the embassy didn't appear to be very interested in doing anything, so I let the matter drop. About ten years later, a girl from Thailand who'd come to Australia to further her education was living with us. We called her Tim because we had difficulty pronouncing her real name. She was studying the Japanese language as part of a university course at the Australian National University. A Japanese national, Mr. Kaneko, was her tutor. Tim took the diary to Mr. Kaneko, asking if he would help in finding the family. I think that this occurred in 1976, when our Prime Minister was planning to visit Japan. Japanese journalists had come to Australia in connection with the proposed visit, and Mr. Kaneko showed the diary to these journalists, who agreed to do what they could do to help. They came to our house where we talked for two hours, during which I gave them all the information I could. Interestingly, they felt that knowing the age of the soldier would be of great assistance to them in their search, and asked me several times if I could remember. It had been more than thirty years ago. We'd buried hundreds after that battle, and it was only one of many battles, and many burying parties. I didn't think that it would be possible to remember him in such detail. But concentrating on it because of their insistence, I could see him again in my mind's eye, as if I was presently looking at him. I said that I thought he would have been in his mid-twenties, which turned out to be correct. The effort involved in doing this took me back to the swamps of Gorna, with the constant firing, the heat, the numbing fatigue the fevers and sickness and the smell and left me mentally exhausted. I was surprised at the disturbing effect it had on me. This experience confirms my belief that everything we've ever seen or heard or smelt or tasted in our lives is stored in our brains somewhere if only we can recover it. The journalists took the diary and the flag back to Japan with them and were successful in locating the soldier's sister in a small village in the mountains near Hiroshima. The rest of this story consists mainly of copies of letters between her daughter-in-law Masuko Kondo and me. I include them because of the great sensitivity expressed in her letters. It's been my experience in life that in a race where the men behave like beasts, the women are exceptionally compassionate and understanding. Perhaps this is nature's way of compensating for the excesses of the men. Letter dated 27th of July 1976 from Masuko Kondo Dear Mr Cook, We've not met before, but I'm writing you this letter of thanks to express my gratitude to you from the bottom of my heart. Today we suddenly received from a Mr. Kaneko living in your country some glad news that we never expected. This is that you've been taking care of some things left behind by my aged mother's brother, who died in the hateful Pacific War, and by your kindness we shall be able to have them returned to us. When we saw the airmail letter in our mailbox, that in itself was unbelievable for people like us who live far out in the countryside. 
We read the address over and over to be sure it was for us before we dared open it. As we read it, we found ourselves facing something we'd not dreamed of. Something dear to us and very joyous, and we wept tears mixed with emotion, fond memories and joy. Mr Cook, thank you very much. With all our hearts, we thank you deeply. Though over 30 years have elapsed since the war ended, you've been good enough to take care of these things for so many years, and besides, you've asked so many people and have gone to so much trouble in order to return them to us. It is more than we could ever have imagined. How thankful it is for someone whom we do not know and have never even heard of from a distant country to go to so much trouble and concern for us. I shall promptly inform the Office of Japan's Welfare Ministry, the government department responsible for finding the family, and Mr Ozawa of the Mainichi newspaper. Mr Ozawa was one of the journalists who came to our home with Mr Kaneko. This year's Obon Festival will soon be held in August. In Japan, at the time of Obon, we greet into our homes the spirits of our deceased ancestors. It's the custom for all in the family, even those who've left to work in the cities, to return for this ceremony and join in consoling the dead. With this once-in-a-year important Obon soon to begin, receiving the belongings of the deceased uncle through your kind sympathies is, as far as we're concerned, the best way of giving my uncle consolation. When my mother and her brother were still small, they lost their parents and faced many hardships in life, but held on despite it all. Then my mother was robbed of her brother by that war. In the sorrowful days that followed, the only article by which she could still feel the presence of her brother was a faded old photograph. But when she learned that she would be able to touch belongings that were, that were on his person at the time of his death, she could not keep back the tears of gratitude for all you've done. Our deepest regret is that we cannot tell you our thanks directly, face to face. Praying here in distant Japan that you shall always and always be healthy and blessed with happiness. I lay my pen down. From my aged mother and from all in the family, heart-born regards, Masuko Kondo. So that was July 1976. I replied immediately with details of her uncle's death at Gona, how I'd come by the flag and diary and the circumstances of their return, I told her that in the final phase of the battle, the Japanese soldiers had been invited to surrender, but had chosen to die fighting. We had buried her uncle and his comrades in soldiers' graves where they fell. I consoled her with the knowledge that her uncle had given his life serving his emperor and his country, and that the family should remember him with pride. I ended my letter with what I thought was an appropriate quotation from Macaulay's famous poem How Horatio Kept the Bridge as an epitaph. Then out spake brave Horatius, the captain of the gate. To every man upon this earth, death cometh soon or late. And how can man die better than facing fearful odds for the ashes of his fathers and the temple of his gods? Masuko's reply to my letter is as follows. So at this point the family has just received the parcel with the items. Dear Mr Cook, thank you very much for your kind letter received the other day. The items that you cared for over so many long years arrived at our home a few days ago. Thank you warmly and from our hearts. My whole family beginning with my mother, were deeply choked with emotion when we held in our hands the items left behind by the deceased. The way in which you carefully preserved these items for 33 years 
reveals to us your kind nature. In the earlier letter, I wrote about the Orbon ceremonies. The items didn't arrive in time for the Orbon, but even so, at this year's Orbon, we were able to propitiate the spirits of the dead members of the family, more specially with deeper emotions. According to your letter, you say that you buried a large number of corpses of Japanese soldiers, and we really are thankful to you for doing this. It seems a shame that we are the only ones to know about this fact. Here at home, we've been discussing whether or not it wouldn't be fitting repayment to the kindness of yourself and others like you, if you would let other families who've lost someone in the war know about what you've done. When our local newspaper made a big story of how you sent us these items of the deceased family member, there was a big reaction to the story. Just the other day, there was a letter to the editor of the paper from a reader who said he cannot get rid of the thought that the bones of many of his soldier friends are lying in the New Guinea, exposed to the elements, and he wishes his country would do something about it and help collect those bones. As soon as we read this, we telephoned the writer and told him everything you said in your letter. When he heard how someone from another country had kindly buried our soldiers, he also was very moved. Even now, those people who managed to live and to return to our country alive still have the scars from the war deeper than we can imagine. I myself lost a brother in the war. After his graduation from the old army officer's school, he went to Burma, where he died at 24, a colonel. Probably he felt a great pride in being able to die for the country and for the emperor, but that is how the Japanese were educated to think at the time. There isn't anything as awful as war, no matter for what reasons, with so many people's lives being taken from them. It seems... There can be absolutely no excuse for this from a standpoint of humanity. And yet wars follow upon wars on the globe, and many lives are lost. This is very sad. With our small, weak power, we just hope for the building of a peaceful world, and do our best every day for this end. With prayers from the heart that days of peace and happiness will always continue to shine on you, Mr Cook, I offer you this letter of thanks. Respectfully, Masuko Kondo. Back to Les. My wife Betty and I were planning to visit the UK in 1977 and were considering going via Japan to meet the Kondo family. I must say that I had some reservations about this as I wondered how my own sister would have felt if the situation was reversed but the suggestion was welcomed warmly by Masuko and we made arrangements to meet at Hiroshima. A transport strike in Japan while we were there made this impossible, but Masuko and her husband were able to come to Kyoto to meet us. Betty had crocheted a large woolen shawl as a present for the soldier's sister, but to her great disappointment, was unable to give it to her in person because she had not been well enough to accompany them. Masuko took the shawl back to her mother-in-law. We didn't know that they'd sent us the doll as a thank you gift until we returned home to Australia almost three months later. Masuko was the mother of two young adult sons when we met at Kyoto in 1977. As a grandfather, I've had the experience of watching the relationship between our daughters and their children as they grow to adulthood. It is with the sensitivity and wisdom that apparently come to most men only with age and family responsibility that I can now fully appreciate the anti-war sentiments expressed in Masuko's letters. I'm sure that she echoes the silent prayer that has arisen in times of conflict from every mother in the world since time began. I remember now with shame that I gave no thought to the anguish my mother must have suffered when soon after my 17th birthday I enlisted in the Australian Imperial Force and was away for almost seven years, most of that time overseas. 
I've taken the liberty of copying the full text of two of Masuko's letters because I believe that in them lie the very heart and soul of this story. I want others to have the opportunity to share with me the beauty of thought contained in her letters and more particularly of her humble and sincere cry from the heart for peace. Masuko's last letter to me ended with the words, I hope that friendship between our two countries and our two families will last forever. I share this hope. The second letter ends here. Even in those days, many Japanese people learned to read and write English, but few could speak it fluently. Masuko has done very well to have composed and written these two letters. Imagine how well any of us could do with the Japanese language if the situation was reversed. I've been told that the doll would have been very expensive. Apart from the sentimental aspect, this is probably why she was so concerned to know that it had arrived safely. I replied immediately, letting her know that we had it, and enclosed a photograph of it on a shelf in our home. We've not been in touch since then. Wow, what a story. And that ending about peace and friendship is all everyone wants, really. And yet despite best endeavours, some people just want to spoil everything. Don't they just? That's the last of Les's stories. I can't believe we're at the end of this epic series, which has outnumbered even the veteran Wilf Shaw's wonderful works. And yet, haven't the episodes rolled effortlessly by? Thank you again to Tony and Debbie for your patience and support getting this project out there. Thank you from the bottom of my heart to Les for your steadfast war service and beyond. At all those Zanzac processions, and for typing out all those tremendous stories, without which I'm sure history records would be somewhat diminished. As usual, listener, thank you very much for your support and for making the time to listen to me. I'm going to give you a, a preview of the next episode now. Don Cairo wrote in, Hi there, Paul, a fan of the podcast in Nanaimo, Canada. I was painting this lovely elderly lady's home. She asked where my accent was from. I says, Zim. She says, wow, far from home. I asked if she's ever been to Africa. She says, no, I've never left the country. I then ask when she was born. She replies, 1939. I instantly asked if she remembered anything about World War Two. She says, she says, my, my dad was in the war from start to end. How good is that, I said to myself. She gave me my own photocopy of her dad's memoir, Cheesy Grin Face. It was about Lance Corporal David Johnson of the Canadian Provost Corps. And hold it, there's more. Some great World War I history. She also emailed me her grandfather's obituary, Frederick William Johnson, 1914 to 1919, Minister of Ammunition in Britain, who was an intimate friend of Lord George. Just wow! How do I share all of this with you? We have the Lord's work to do, mate. <laughs> well, the rest is history, and exceedingly desperate Don soon had a scan of his faded photocopy winging its way over the ether to me, upon which I've got it typed up. Jamie Bure, if you're listening... That donation you made just came in very useful with change to boot. Thanks, Jamie. And what a great little memoir this has proved to be. I'm not going to give you any previews of it because I'm going to get it out as a bonus episode ASAP. I've got so many projects in the offing, I could spend an hour just telling you about them. But I learned many years ago not to tell, just do and then tell. So, so that's what I'm going to do ASAP. So that's Lance Corporal David Johnson of the Canadian Provost Corps. Oh, go on then. <laughs> he is just a taster. Next episode preview. 
Now that I'm approaching my 71st birthday, it seems proper that some of the circumstances which I witnessed during the World War of 1939-45 should be recorded. First, that Canadians may not forget that generation of young men who voluntarily left homes and jobs and loved ones, that they might face the threat of Hitler's fascist hordes already on the march over Europe. Soon memories will fade, and we who are left will be as pieces of driftwood upon the shores of time. Those brave Canadians who did not return to their beloved Canada will have no testimony. Remember Christmas Day on the Morrow River. We had dug in, and as usual, I dug an extra deep slip trench. All night, Christmas Eve, we were shelled by German 88s. The sergeant asked for volunteers to help lay tape to mark out lanes for the tanks where the engineers had swept the mines. I said, count me in. A limey convoy down the road had stopped and the men had taken to the ditches. It then moved up to me and an officer said, Corporal, we're going to set up in this field. I said, Sir, they're shelling this road. And he replied he must set up his unit anyway. So that's Lance Corporal David Johnson. Next episode, 84. More great unpublished history. P.S. The Happy Wanderers. You know, I'm such a tease. <laughs> Just when you thought the coast was clear and you'd heard the last of the Les Cook yarns, here's one more to well and truly sew up the series and give Les's larynx and mine a good-earned rest. Well, until I've done the next episode, of course. ASAP. So, this is called The Happy Wanderers. I think in this story there's a moral about not drinking too much Calvados and then riding a bicycle, but I'll let you make your own mind upon this one. I cannot remember seeing a fight between sober men in the almost seven years I was in the AIF. There were clashes of personality and differences of opinion, of course, and occasionally some of these became quite heated. But, unless alcohol was also involved, they didn't deteriorate into fisticuffs. I'm aware that there were brawls in the towns involving many people where some relatively serious injuries were inflicted, but I didn't actually see one, although I did see some of the aftermath. Fights between individuals affected by alcohol in camp were mostly minor affairs, causing very little damage to either of the combatants. For obvious reasons, the army didn't make any allowances for people who'd been drinking heavily the previous evening. Whatever was on the training schedule for the next day went ahead without regard for their suffering, which often was very great. The regular drinkers never learnt their lesson, or perhaps they considered that it was worth the suffering. They continued to inflict this punishment on themselves whenever drink was available, and were no better at the end of the war than when it had started. Even near the end of the war, when we were all getting tired, the most happy times were when we were on the field exercises away from camp and the wet canteen. When I look back on it, it seems that we probably spent more time in the field than we did in camp. The field exercises lasted for varying periods of up to two weeks. Carrying our personal gear, food and weapons, we'd march for about 30 kilometres most days, camping in a different place wherever we stopped each night. The purpose of the exercises was to harden all ranks, simulate battle conditions and to provide tactical experience for the officers and NCOs. Except that there was no real enemy, we lived as we did in action. Weapon pits were dug each night and filled in the next morning before we left. In addition to daytime manoeuvres, we engaged in night exercises and stood to at dawn and dusk as we did when in action. On nights when there were no training exercises, we'd just lie around the campfires after stand-down, drinking tea and yarning until we went to sleep. Perhaps it was because we were all physically tired and there wasn't anything else to do, but I remember these times as the most relaxed times of the war. 
We had people from everywhere and from every occupation, and many of them spun a good yarn. Platoon commanders and platoon sergeants who lived separately from the men while we were in camp lived with us on these exercises as they did when we were in action. By mutual consent at such times, our differences of rank were largely forgotten, which provided an opportunity for us to get to know each other as individuals. Generally speaking, an officer who could not accommodate these periods of camaraderie was not going to be a good leader, or at least he was not going to be a popular one. It was while we were on these field exercises that the heavy drinkers were often heard to extol the virtues of not drinking. The luxury to them of waking up without a headache, with, <laughs> with clear eyes and a fresh mouth, was the subject of many morning discussions. Accompanied by the words, this is the way a man was meant to live, many were the light-hearted oaths made that they would henceforth give up drinking. Needless to say, these promises were forgotten as soon as we returned to camp. For a change, I'm playing out with Voyage of War by Mark Peters. You can download your own copy in the usual online music stores. I'm Paul Cheel saying bye-bye now. I'm Les Cook, your guide.